Hi, Shuko. You puzzle queen. How do you like this sound? I love opening a fresh new jigsaw puzzle and pouring it on the table. The topic we have today is something like a puzzle. It's about putting together lots of different pieces into one big picture. What's the biggest puzzle you've ever did? Mm, I'd say something like about 10,000 parts. Um, oh, it was really? about, yeah, it was a, a big Japanese anime type of puzzle. <laughs> um, and I was really excited, obviously, because some of the colors are just really dominant. And so I love it when two pieces really fit together. Wow, how long did it take you? I think I was finished within a week. It was during a holiday. Oh, not bad. Not patient enough for that. <laughs> <laughs> you have other things to be patient about now, Melina. <laughs> so yeah, you, you guys can hear my son from time to time wandering around the house in the background. Well, today's puzzle is a little more on the industrial landscape side, the one we are talking about. That sounds also very challenging. From know-how to wow. The Bosch Global Podcast. Our topic today, <laughs> I asked a chatbot to write a riddle about it. Well, listeners, can you guess it? I'm the lightest element you'll ever find. But don't be fooled, I'm not to be undermined. I'm number one on the periodic chart. And if you're looking for me, I'm never far apart. I'm in water, stars, and every living cell. And if you give me the chance, I'll cuss quite a swell. I'm simple yet powerful, a gas that flies. And without me, the universe just wouldn't survive. Chatbot, I think that sounds more like <laughs> the Jeff bot. Yes, it is the synthesized voice of our <laughs> dear co-host Jeff. <laughs> Today, we are going to talk about hydrogen and why making hydrogen is a complex puzzle in itself. So hydrogen, I very well remember the last time we covered hydrogen on the show. Jeff and I were talking to Michael Marino, who develops fuel cells at Bosch. Mm. And we shrunk ourselves and went inside a fuel cell stack. Let's have a listen. And now it's moving up these pipes, up the stack, and now the first cell comes, then the second cell, the third cell, and a part of that gas flow of the air and the hydrogen now enters to the side. So if we're going to make a right turn here and go into one of these cells? Now when it goes into the individual cells, we are on a scale of, let's say, about a millimeter or half a millimeter about in size. All right, so more shrinking. Let's get even smaller. <clears throat> right. And now we gotta squeeze through these very, very thin channels. Oh, okay. And when the gases move along these channels, they are also in contact with the so-called gas diffusion layer. And that allows the gases to diffuse through this gas diffusion layer and get into contact with the catalytic layer. Oh, that was such a fun episode. And as you could hear, you could learn a lot about the physics and the chemistry of turning hydrogen and oxygen into electricity. 
using a fuel cell, obviously. <laughs> I'm just glad we reversed the shrinking and my voice doesn't sound, <laughs> you know, so high-pitched <laughs> like that anymore. <laughs> oh, I'd find that hilarious. <laughs> As always, you can find the link to this show in our show notes. I would have loved to be part of that experience. You know what? We have a great sound designer, and I'm pretty sure Silvan can shrink you to exactly that size. Oh, yes, please do. <laughs> what we're having a closer look at today is the reverse process, electrolysis, making hydrogen out of water using electricity. <laughs> okay. Please turn it back. <laughs> But... Does that mean the technology is also the same? I would be surprised if it was as simple as just basically turning a fuel cell around and have it make hydrogen. Well, I mean, to be honest, the answer is yes and no. <laughs> There are a lot of similarities. We will get to know everything about this amazing technology from our colleague Annika Oates. At the core, we have the stack. Stack means we have a stacking of several cells electrochemical cells, and we put them together, connect them electrically in series, and we have large screws to press it all together. Annika Utz is a senior expert for systems engineering of electrolysis modules at Bosch. The stacks she and her coworkers built are not for fuel cells, but for electrolyzers. But before we get into the differences, there are more commonalities. We are actually working with PEM, which is polymer electrolyte membrane-based electrolysis. So we have a membrane in the middle, which is conductive for hydrogen ions. The fuel cell that Jeff and I dove into in the episode about fuel cell trucks, that also used a PEM membrane. And of course, Annika and her team can use some of the know-how about how to manufacture a stack from the fuel cell team. But that's about where the similarities end. We are typically working with larger cell and stack sizes, but also we need to use different materials. As in the fuel cell, the voltage is below standard voltage, and in electrolysis, the voltage is higher, which means it's rougher conditions for the materials. And of course, an electrolyzer typically doesn't make sense on a truck. They're stationary, so in a different environment too. The electrolyzers will also run for much longer. It's probably best to compare them to other facilities producing chemical compounds, for example. Okay. However, where exactly they'll be used and what the requirements for those use cases are, that is still a bit unclear. There is pretty much no existing industry that uses electrolyzers to make hydrogen. Today, most of the hydrogen, more than 90% is produced from fossil fuels. So if you look at natural gas, it's mostly methane, so it's CH4. So you directly see that you have 4H plus in it. So you kind of split it up in a chemical process and then you produce hydrogen, but it comes along with carbon dioxide production. So that's called stem methane reforming. This CO2-emitting chemical process would have to be replaced by electrolysis to produce green hydrogen then. And if you're wondering, listeners, how hydrogen can be pink, brown, gray or green, here's another pointer to our back catalog. Just listen to all the previous episodes and I can totally tell you it's worth it. Yeah. Uh -huh. <laughs> Main message and what's really important, green hydrogen is produced by using renewable energy. Right. 
Before this hasn't been done because it wasn't economical. Brown or gray hydrogen, so hydrogen produced in a non-climate friendly way, was too cheap to produce compared to electrolysis. The things have changed. Correct. Putting a price tag on carbon dioxide leads to the fact that green hydrogen gets competitive price-wise compared to gray or brown hydrogen, which is important for a breakthrough. Decarbonization is the way to go. And there are not many other options to decarbonize hydrogen production besides electrolysis. So let's continue with our puzzle here. If you think of establishing a green hydrogen economy as a big puzzle, putting a price tag on CO2 is one of the most important pieces. So as a game enthusiast, I can draw from my rich experience of solving puzzles. It always starts with, um, let me see, the corners. Mm, expert tip here. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> so a significant price for CO2 emissions would be, in this case, a corner piece of the hydrogen puzzle. Let's push this metaphor even further. The next corner piece would be that electrolyzers become cheaper. That is what Annika is all about. She works on industrializing stack production. So far, electrolyzer stacks have been produced by hand. If we industrialize stacks and also entire systems, we will reduce the hardware cost of electrolyzers. Then we need, in a second step, cheap electricity. And then we will have cheap hydrogen as a product. Cheap renewable electricity is being worked on with capacity growing year by year. Maybe not fast enough, but we're getting there. Hmm. And we still need a fourth corner piece, um, if I'm not wrong. Hmm, perhaps that could be the demand for hydrogen. Well, I think what we need to make it a success is that we have the demand and the supply at the same time. So the demand for hydrogen should definitely be there, right? Not only for fuel cells in trucks. We also had another episode about hydrogen for heating. If you remember, Tom Collins was our expert on this show, talking to me and Jeff. How do you use it for heating? How do you build a boiler that burns hydrogen instead of methane? There's this myth, there's this understanding. Everybody knows it's just not possible to have a hydrogen boiler. And I thought that that can't be true. So we went back to our R&D site at Bosch and a, a few engineers got together and we decided to, to build one. We got a scrap boiler. We reached out and found some existing industrial technology for burning hydrogen. We integrated it with our heat cells and we built a white box, the shape, size, the, the casing of a boiler, but it could burn 30 kilowatts, which is the standard output of pure hydrogen. Bosch researchers at their finest. Short advertising break. <laughs> <laughs> Yet another fantastic episode in our backlog for you to check out. <laughs> So yes, heating homes will be a future application for hydrogen and drive the demand. And similarly, there are other applications where it's hard to decarbonize them by electrifying them. So hydrogen becomes a strong contender. Planes, for example. Electric planes are not really doable because the batteries would be too heavy. Similarly, for maritime applications, big freight ships. They need renewable fuels made from hydrogen. Or industry, like steel plants and glass production, for example. They need hydrogen as feedstock. So hydrogen would be the carrier or the way to decarbonize industries or paths that are 
how to abate using electricity directly. So this is a point where I'm going to ask the B question, is it, but... Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's time for, for the, exactly. <laughs> the B question. <laughs> but it's been tricky to make predictions without this new electrolysis-based hydrogen industry mm-hmm. already in existence. Annika and her team have to make some good guesses to figure out what product the market needs while the market doesn't exist yet. Super tricky. You will need to provide a product that people who want the product don't know yet, so they don't know what they want of it. (laughs) Sounds like they're trying to add some pieces to our very incomplete puzzle, but they don't know if they'll fit. Or as Annika puts it, I think hydrogen and electrolysis is the best example of chicken and egg. It's a chicken and egg problem. The market doesn't exist because there are no electrolyzers. (laughs) There are no electrolyzers because there's no market. So sure, except for the chicken and egg, the answer is actually quite clear. Wait, wait, is it? (laughs) You want to tell me that you know what came first? I've got something better. I know someone who knows what came first. Ooh, I'm intrigued. It's got to be the chicken, right? I'm going to bring in Roy Sorensen into this conversation. He is a philosopher at the University of Texas in Austin. Hello? Hi, Roy. This is Shuko from From Know How to Wow, and I'm here with my co-host, Milena. Hi, Roy. Nice to talk to you. Well, how are you? (laughs) So, Roy, we have a conundrum here. Which came first, the chicken or the egg? Please enlighten us. (laughs) Well, you come to the right hotline on this. It's going to be the egg. Really, Roy? Come on. (laughs) So you think this can settle the debate for good? Yeah, and I'm, I'm backed by science. Yeah, it requires that Mendel be correct in his theories, that Lamarck be incorrect in his theories. So if Lamarck had been correct with his idea that you could, like a giraffe could get taller by stretching and that you could have different organisms developed by their efforts, then it would be the chicken that would win. But because Mendel is correct and Darwin is correct, the, the kind of the, the combination of the two theories, then it turns out egg wins. Mm. <laughs> egg wins. <Okay. laughs> I, I cannot really argue with Mendel and Darwin. <laughs> but what is it specifically that science tells us about this? The, according to Mendel, you can't change the identity of the chicken, the genetic identity of the chicken during the organism in its lifetime. The only opportunities to change are at reproduction. So it has to be that the egg wins because it can only happen within an egg. So that resolves the big question. And so now we know how to end all those bar fights. It's the egg that wins. Ask science. Okay, I I kind of feel defeated here. Poor Melena. (laughs) The first chicken genome was created when an egg was fertilized. I understood that correctly, right? Yes, you did. But in reality, this was a gradual evolutionary process. So there's no first chicken egg. Uh, yeah, you, you might actually have a point there. Well, it was certainly correct that it is a gradual evolutionary process. And that's when I first thought about it, I thought, well, this is a silly question because Darwin has just shown it's a very gradual process. I agree that you can't tell which egg was the first mm-hmm. chicken egg. <laughs> that part's correct because it's a gradual process. But it's still the case that the only way you can make the transition is you know, when there's a bit of a genetic change, enough to push it over to some pre-chicken egg to a (laughs) a chicken egg. So, Roy, before we let you go, one last question. 
and I'll make it an easy one. What does this all mean? Can we actually learn something from it for the real world chicken and egg situations? I'm, I mean, we're, we're asking for a friend here, right? <laughs> Our friend, Annika. <laughs> yeah, I think it's some grounds for optimism because, I mean, we do sort of seem to be able to do it. And I, I think we are able to make small changes uh, and we cross thresholds. So we have all these marvels of the marketplace, you know, how you establish a market. It's, it's difficult to do it given you don't already have a market, but... You know, it also, it may at first seem that you're not going to get any chickens, but the idea is like some small changes would be responsible so that you might have some threshold passing. And so one of the advantages of the Darwinian theory is that you have so many gentle slopes to things that look like they can't start. How do you get an eye? You know, Darwin was very worried about how does an eye evolve? Looks kind of hopeless. But, you know, maybe you have a little organist sensitive to whether there is light or not. And so they you kind of piece it together. Oh, well, what I need is a slippery slope where all these little gradual things happen. That is true. And thank you for ending this on an optimistic note. Roy, it's been a pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you very much. <laughs> well, I enjoy talking about the egg and spreading the gospel. Egg first. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Roy. Bye-bye. <laughs> so, yeah, I'm glad we could get the definitive answer <laughs> he really at least Roy really left no doubt yeah um, but also <laughs> that point that things evolve gradually but maybe we can help with creating some how did he call it slippery slopes <laughs> and once things start getting down there everything suddenly accelerates and gains traction I love this sound it's so soothing <laughs> So yeah, let's get back to the puzzle analogy. I think that can happen there too, right? The beginning is hard, but at some point you cross a threshold where fitting in new pieces becomes easier. But concretely, what does that mean for the hydrogen economy and hydrogen production? Mm -hmm. So, I mean, I have the feeling that some puzzle pieces are in place. Like we said, prices for carbon dioxide. But Annika says to get things going, multiple players have to make big leaps and move on from a wait-and-see position. Like big companies just saying, okay, let's just risk it and then leading the way. Mm, so we need some, some big investments getting into electrolysis. And Bosch is doing its part. Developing the electrolyzer stack and bringing it to the market is a big leap of faith. But what did Roy say? <laughs> backed by science. So backed by engineering in our case. But so while it's not entirely clear yet what the needs of the market are, the team at Bosch still manages to develop a product. Oh, absolutely. They came up with what they think is the ideal stack design that is both possible to manufacture efficiently and well-suited for different usage scenarios. One question they had to answer... What would be a standard size that you can deliver to as much players as possible? How big should a stack actually be? What performance should it actually deliver? But also basic questions like, what is the perfect hydrogen outlet pressure that is as high as possible, but also not too high, so that you kind of need to relax the pressure afterwards? Let's get into that a little bit. Just looking at this one variable. One of many knobs and levers that you can turn, you know, trying to figure out the optimum. 
But what happens if the hydrogen is coming out with too much or too little pressure? If you have already a certain pressure at the outlet of the stack, you can reduce the number of compressors you need afterwards. And they also come with an energy consumption, of course, um, hardware investment. So you can reduce the total investment for the entire plant by already producing hydrogen at a certain pressure. But you shouldn't go too high in the electrolyzer because then you also need to consider the gas tightness of the stack. At a higher pressure, it is, of course, more difficult to have the surface pressure to make the seals at the outside um, gas tight over the entire lifetime. That makes sense. If you have a higher pressure, that has consequences for the engineering. But how do you engineer a stack to deliver a certain pressure? You can adjust it within a certain range. You can kind of use the electrolyzer as a hydrogen pump by the hydrogen ions, just applying a little bit of higher voltage and closing the valve at the end. So this is one aspect that is important to know. You can increase the hydrogen pressure already at the outlet of the stack to, let's say, 20 to 40 bar. If you go much higher, then you will again lose a bit of the hydrogen by back diffusion, which would be negative. So that's just one of many parameters that influence the performance, the lifetime, the cost, and ultimately the design of the stack. Eventually, Annika and her team arrived at a stack design with impressive dimensions compared to much smaller stacks used in fuel cells. At the moment, we are focusing on an approximate one megawatt stack. This will be the size of 80 centimeters squared by one meter 60 approximately. And the weight will be really, um, yeah, a number. It will be two tons. Quite a heavy piece of equipment. And oh, yeah. that's just the stack. So we're not even talking about the entire electrolyzer, right? It's the stack alone. Bosch is just producing the stack, to be very clear. So not the entire electrolyzer. So we'll make the piece of equipment at the heart of an electrolyzer, but everything else will be have to come from elsewhere. Because we think that's what the industry at the moment needs the most. Stacks with good efficiencies at lowest possible cost and with high reliability. That's how Bosch delivers important components for cars. We don't build cars, but crucial parts that others need to integrate into their systems. Mm-hmm. But we understand, you know, the system as a whole, and that enables us to deliver the best components. Further down the line, there will be another product, however, that goes a little beyond just the stack. Annika calls it the Smart Electrolysis Module. The Smart Module will be two stacks with the power electronics. That's where we think the efficiency will be very good, as we have a perfect fit of stack to power electronics with this current voltage characteristics. Wow. The word smart probably hits at something more, right? Mm. Are, we go are we going to be mentioning sensors, <laughs> perhaps? <laughs> That's what we've learned <laughs> during like, the podcast, exactly. right? <laughs> something is smart. So yes, of course, <laughs> you're right. <laughs> Data is collected to monitor and steer the stack. We combine a stack with sensors and have local controls to increase safety of the stack. For example, you measure temperature, you measure stack voltage or even individual cell voltage. You measure the pressure and temperature differences. And based on these sensor values, you can compare it with a model and realize if there are 
deviations from the model evolving, which might indicate a problem. That's still not a whole electrolyzer, though. You need much more for actually having a functioning setup that turns water into hydrogen. The product will not include the water circuit, meaning the gas-liquid separators, the pumps, the filters, etc. So basically all those things that go around the stack that already exist in the industry, in chemical plants, for example. Okay, I'm starting to get it. The stack, or in this case, the smart module, will be the central component of a hydrogen production plant that needs a bit more infrastructure around the stack. Mm, absolutely, yeah. It will probably make the most sense to install bigger plants where several stacks are connected to one water circuit. We need to think in large plants, which do we scale by size and which components do we size by number? So for the stacks, we go with scale by number. So a lot of stacks of a limited size. But for this whole water circuit, we somehow need to go with a scaling by size because having one pump, one gas liquid separator per stack doesn't seem to be really efficient. You could imagine these big hydrogen producing plants being installed and run by the same companies that today run oil refineries, chemical plants or power plants. Okay. They need a new business after all, right? And they have the experience with processes like this. Ideally, also there would be a wind farm or photovoltaic plant nearby. So especially in the beginning, you will have kind of centers for hydrogen where they have access to renewable energy. They produce large amounts of hydrogen. And for example, they use them directly on spot as chemistry plants. Or they, they put it into the pipeline grid, which is continuously expanding. So going back to our puzzle analogy, I'm certain that the piece that Annika contributes to the puzzle, that is the green hydrogen economy, will find all other pieces that need to connect to it so that they can form an ecosystem in which electrolysis makes sense. I truly think that other players will quickly see the potential in this. Mm -hmm. The chemical industry, for instance, needs to find ways to decarbonize their production, right? Mm -hmm. Having a mass-produced yet high-quality stack available will be the key to get electrolysis and the whole green hydrogen ecosystem going. Really confident about this. And let's be honest, who could manage to do that if not Bosch and our engineers? Right. Industrializing complex manufacturing processes is our expertise. <laughs> and it's clear that Bosch is a company that has the structure... Uh, set up to offer long-term support and service. Also, mass production will make stacks less expensive. And that is very important. Now everybody else will need to do their part. Providing a stack in large numbers at, at short lead times in, in good quality is one important point to realize green hydrogen. But it only will be successful if we have the renewable energy, if we have the off-takers, if we have the system integrators and the whole mankind, let's say, being aware of, okay, let's shift to hydrogen. Let's do this. I'm fully convinced. Come on, let's go. <laughs> let's do it, people. <laughs> let's shift to hydrogen. Woo! So, I'd say that the main part of the puzzle is solved. Yeah. Isn't it? <laughs> now we just need to keep investing to get us going down that chicken and egg style <laughs> slippery slope <laughs> towards green hydrogen. <laughs> I'm just going to say, well said, Melina. <laughs> We're not going to open that kind of worms again. <laughs> Thank you very much. <laughs> but at the beginning of this episode, we threw the individual pieces of the puzzle 
right onto the table. And now we see how a frame has been created. Yes. Milena, I'd say that's a wrap. That's a wrap. Let's pass the mic to Jeff Bot, or rather Jeff's voice avatar for the next Deep Dive episode. So stay tuned, everyone. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye. Thank you very much. Bye-bye. From know-how to wow. The Bosch Global Podcast. In the realm of podcasts, a teaser's told. From know-how to wow, a story unfolds. Anika Utsa's Deep Dive, an episode profound. Revealing the secrets of an electrolysis mound. Why is it so tricky, this intriguing stack? Seeking answers, we venture to track. Tweaking the parameters, a puzzle unsolved. Discovering ways to make it more evolved. But dangers lurk in this electrifying spree. With water and power, what could it be? Hydrogen and oxygen, a perilous blend. Stay tuned for answers, my curious friend.